take out your Bibles and join me in turning to Acts chapter 5. As we turn to God's word, let's return to him in prayer, asking for his aid and assistance. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for not leaving your people alone for not asking us to find our way home without a map and a compass. And you have given us your word. You have given us your spirit. And we thank you, Father, that your spirit is a person. And we are thankful for the personal, powerful presence of your Holy Spirit among your people. And so would he open our eyes to see your truth, open our ears to hear your truth, open our minds to know your truth, Open our hearts to embrace your truth and strengthen our hands and feet to do and walk in a way that pleases you. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Have you heard these words before? Oh yes, I'm the great pretender. Pretending that I'm doing well. My need is such, I pretend too much. Oh yes, I'm the great pretender. Adrift in a world of my own. I seem to be what I'm not, you see. Oh yes, I'm the great pretender. Now if you're familiar with the words, you're probably also familiar with the music and it was very hard to say those words without singing those words because those are the words of the platters from 1955 their greatest hit of all time and you all know what the title is right the great pretender and the title and words of that song capture well what we will see in our text today as we continue in our study of acts we will encounter two people pretending to be someone and something that they were not. Today is number 13 in our series from the book of Acts, looking back at our history and moving forward in our mission. Our look at all that Jesus continued to do and teach now by the Holy Spirit in the church founded by Him through the apostles. Acts like every bit of scripture, is given to not only inform our faith, but to strengthen our faith. A faith which, of course, we didn't attain on our own, but a faith which we've been given. Last week was Life Together from Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37, the second summary of the common life of believers in the church. And we saw last week that there were two defining characteristics. The church was united in heart and the church was generous in hand through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in the church and among her members. We've already begun to see threats to the unity of the church from the outside through kind of minor persecution that will become full-blown persecution as we make our way through Acts. So there's threats to the unity from the outside, but today we will see also threats to unity from the inside through corruption, through compromise. 
Today's text, you will notice, starts with the word but. And so we will be um, moving from what we saw last week in a good example to this week in a bad example. Now this is a significant text in that it is a challenging text. It's not a happy, feel-good text. As I mentioned earlier, if we weren't constrained in a great way to work our way through, we'd probably skip right over it. Um, For non-believers, they may see this text as so strange that whoever wrote Acts must have just made it up. But for a nominal believer, in other words, nominal in name only, their response may be along these lines. This doesn't sound like the God of the New Testament, but rather the Old Testament, so to speak. But for actual believers, and another name for that is Christians, it's a challenge because it's, it's going to deal with judgment here and now. But it's also significant in that it's an encouraging text. My friends, because it's in the Bible here, we should have great confidence in the Scriptures. Luke is a historian. He's not a propagandist. He's honest about the church. And in this particular case, he's honest about dishonesty in the church. So we have confidence in the text, but we also see an affirmation of reality. There is no perfect church on earth yet. The day is coming. It's not here yet. So we're going to take a look at sin in the church. Its circumstance, its commission, its confrontation, and its consequences. And then we're going to take a look at the sin in more detail and follow that with an examination of its effect on the church. Uh, Join with me as I read Acts chapter 5, verses um, 1 through 11. And I'm actually going to start in chapter 4, verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came, among, came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. 
And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Well, let's begin by recognizing that this incident is a bad example. Well, what were the circumstances of the sin? Now, we have to go back before we can go forward. You remember the unity and fellowship of the believers in the church. And we see that specifically in verses 32 through 35 of chapter 4. And we heard just again this good example of Barnabas who sold some property and laid the proceeds of the sale at the feet of the apostles. But here is a contrast that Luke is setting up. On the outside, these two actions, both by Barnabas and by Ananias and Sapphira, are the same. They look the same from the outside, but not on the inside. Barnabas, as he continues in Acts, we'll see he's commended while the action of Ananias and Sapphira was condemned and solemnly judged. You see, Ananias and Sapphira came up with a scheme to sell the land they owned and to hold back some of the proceeds and keep them in a secret and dishonest way. Twice in the Bible we see this held back, kept back. We see it in Titus, it refers to pilfering. We, we see that same word translated in the Greek translation of the, New Te- of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, in the reading that we heard from Joshua 7. The theft, the secret theft of something that was not their own. So there's the circumstance of the sin and the commission of the sin, but that sin gets confronted by Peter, who is operating here with apostolic knowledge. We don't know how he knows, but he knows. And he asks a series of questions along the lines of, why is Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit versus the Holy Spirit filling your heart. And for those of you familiar with the New Testament, you hear an echo of what happened to Judas as Satan, as it were, entered him and he went off to betray Jesus. It's important to note with these questions that Peter is asking that The sale of the land was voluntary. It wasn't compulsory. It was free. You were free to give. Peter climaxes this confrontation by saying, you haven't just lied to men, to us. You've rather lied to God. And with that, we see the consequence of sin. Immediate divine judgment. It gives new meaning to uh, those of you in sports to the term sudden death, doesn't it? It gives new meanings to when you see something that's beautiful, and you guys know what I mean, when you say so-and-so is drop-dead good-looking, right? Sudden death, drop-dead. There's part one with Ananias, part two with Sapphira, and they are, they're both maintaining the lie. Peter once again adds that they attempted to test the spirit of the Lord. Like Israel, they attempted to see how much they could get away with. Deuteronomy chapter 6 reminds God's people, do not 
put the Lord to the test. But there's another consequence that we see in our text, and that is this consequence of judgment. And at the end of verse 5 and again at 11, the, the instant shot nature of this judgment, the sudden death, this drop dead is shocking, absolutely shocking. And you know what? That's the point. It's to be shocking. And, and what results? Well, twice we see great fear. Great fear came upon everyone in the church. The church, it's Luke's first use of the word church in Acts. And you, you, you see that great fear came upon the whole church and all those who heard it. Earlier, we heard about great grace and great power. And here's Luke talking about great fear. Fear of displeasing God that comes from the knowledge of His holiness and the knowledge of the consequence of sin. Fear is in response to a manifestation of God's presence. And if you want a good passage to go to, is go to the end of Hebrews chapter 12 about God being a consuming fire. This is a parallel with the Old Testament reading, Joshua 7. You see, God's knowledge of and action against that first sin as God's people moved into the promised land. And it's paralleled here as, as it were, God's people move into the promised land, the church. It's not parallel just because of a word they kept back, but it's parallel because of the very idea itself. Well, let's take a look a closer look at what Ananias and Sapphira did that brought about such a swift and decisive divine judgment. Um, have any of you all wondered why this wasn't in response to the sin of murder, the sin of adultery, but rather something else, the sin of hypocrisy? Well, what was it? Well, let's back up. It's lying. It's lying. It's anti-truth, it's lying to the church, lying to the Holy Spirit, lying to God. And lying is antithetical to God who cannot lie. As we heard earlier, God is light and in Him there is what children? No darkness at all. Jesus Himself would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I came to bear witness to the truth. God hates lying. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to Proverbs chapter 12. Proverbs chapter 12. Sometimes Proverbs go from one thing to the next thing, not only in a, the next verse, but in the same verse. But here there's sort of a theme. So join with me as I read Proverbs chapter 12, verse 17 through 22. Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrust, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. No ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. 
God hates lying, but you know what? So does civil society. The, where we live on paper hates lying. I mean, you have laws to enforce and promote honesty among a society. And while people sometimes have no problem lying, people really don't like being lied to, do they? Because you see, it wasn't just lying in general, it was hypocrisy in particular. And for many people, sadly, when they hear the word Christian, they immediately think of hypocrites. In fact, G.K. Chesterton said, the greatest argument against the truth of Christianity is the lives of Christians. However, although hypocrisy is sin, not all sin is hypocrisy. You see, a hypocrite pretends either to be more righteous or less sinful than he really is. And when we run into God's law, His standards, His expectations, His holiness, His righteousness, there's two ways we can fail, either by lowering God's law to something that we think we can accomplish, or by pretending to be obedient and meeting that high standard. Now, the pretending of children is generally a good thing, isn't it? As it helps to develop imagination and creativity, right? All of us as children, we pretended to be someone we were not. However, pretending about spiritual matters, to put it bluntly, is deadly as Ananias and Sapphira found out. John Stott, in his commentary, writes this, The apostles' complaint was not that they lacked honesty, bringing only part of the sales price, but they lacked integrity, bringing only a part while pretending to bring the whole. They were not so much misers as thieves and above all liars, they wanted the credit and prestige for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. So in order to gain a reputation to which they had no right, they told a brazen lie. Their motive in giving was not to relieve the poor, but to fatten their own ego. Now, as we've been looking at the unity of the church, uh, we might have referenced uh, the, the motto of the United States, or it's on the seal, E Pluribus Unum. Help me out. Out of many, one. Well, I grew up in North Carolina, and on the North Carolina flag are these Latin words. Esse quam videre. Esse quam videre. Which says to be rather than to seem. And that's the basic sin of Ananias and Sapphira, to present themselves as something they were not. You see, they are posing as spiritual giants. You know, the ones who sacrificially give. When they were actually on the inside struggling with pride and materialism. If they had come to the church and confessed their struggle with sin, then they would have been honest with the Holy Spirit instead of lying to the Holy Spirit. And so the real sin of hypocrisy 
is a refusal to honestly repent. Now, why was it done? Why? What was the motivation for the sin? Again, it's a desire for recognition by the church. And it's an attempt to gain credit for something that they really didn't do. Kids, my goodness, all of us, the temptation to get credit, to do well on a test by taking a shortcut, by borrowing someone's answers, instead of it reflecting who you really are, what you know. Their motive for giving wasn't God's honor, but their honor. Not to benefit the poor and needy, but rather to benefit them. Instead of being gripped by the fear of God, they were gripped by another kind of fear. Fear of losing the security that money promises. That's what held their hearts captive. And notice that the fear of losing face before the church kept the lie going. And we see that in Sapphira's response. So it's important before we move on to consider the sin beneath the sin. If you start digging, what's maybe presenting on the surface is not that which is down deep. Why did they lie? Now before we go all on on these two people who cannot, as it were, defend themselves, why do I lie? Why do you lie? Why are you not honest even with friends? Have you guys ever lied to a friend? Of course you have. Of course I have. But why? Because at that moment we are making human approval or our reputation more important than the righteousness that we have by faith in Jesus. You see, at the root of lying is idolatry. It goes right back to the first commandment. There is another God whom we are worshiping at the moment. Paul calls worship of the creation over the creator, in other words, idolatry, the lie. It's the lie, Romans 1. You see, it wasn't murder or adultery. It wasn't those visible sins that were judged. Rather, it was the invisible spiritual pride that was judged because of its subtle but enormous danger to the church. If it wasn't dealt with, it would have poisoned the church. Trying to deceive the church is trying to deceive the Holy Spirit. So what was then and what still is hypocrisy's effect on the church? Well, you see it in the third point. Falsehood destroys fellowship. The truth and fellowship of the church are integrally related. Let's listen to the apostles John and Paul. We heard it earlier. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with who? With one another. As Paul writes the church in Ephesus and in Colossae, he's talking about put off the old and put on the new. And in Ephesians, he says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? For we are members of one body. 
In Colossians, he writes, do not lie to one another. Why? Because you have put off the old self with its practices. Some of you may have been to the uh, United States Military Academy at West Point, New York. And there's a cadet honor code which says simply that a cadet will not lie, cheat, steal, or tolerate those who do. Well, what do they mean by lying? Here's what they mean by lying. Cadets violate the honor code by lying if they deliberately deceive one another by stating an untruth or by any direct form of communication to include the telling of a partial truth and the vague or ambiguous use of information or language with the intent to deceive or mislead. My former brother-in-law was a cadet at West Point, and while he was there, a number of his fellow cadets violated the honor code and were expelled. They had to leave. Now, if, if, if this is the case with a military academy, if this is the case with civil society, how much more is it the case with the church? There is no sin that completely breaks fellowship, that ruins the church's witness and destroys your relationship with God except the refusal to repent. You know, there is one article in our visitors' information and welcome folder. It is James Montgomery Boyce's article, Repenting Always. Because the life of a Christian is not repent one and done. The life of a Christian, my life, your life, is repenting over and over and over again all the way home. All of life is repentance. You see, Ananias and Sapphira abused the fellowship through their deception and they threatened, therefore, the unity of the church. And the distrust and disunity were provoked by dishonesty, by hypocrisy, by a refusal to repent. The church is a body that has to work together. Members have got to count on one another. Going back to the military example, going back to the sports team, you got to count on the person on your right, on your left to do their job. And what is the job of a believer? Simply to continue to repent and believe. It's the two-cycle engine that gets us home. Now as we turn toward a conclusion, let's return to the world of music with another song, not from the mid-50s, but rather the late 70s, from the R&B group out of Philadelphia with the great name Love Committee off their LP or their album. Kids, that's before the CD or the digital download came out, okay? And, and, and Love Committee has a great song called Cheaters Never Win. And here are some of the words. Cheaters never win. I know never win. They never win. You better look over your shoulder sometime. Cheaters never. They never. They never win. They always get it. They always get it in the end. And toward the end, as the song is trailing off, you hear these words. You ain't fooling nobody but yourself, fellas. Who you think you're trying to fool? 
when you do the things you do. Well, my friends, there is a lot of scriptural truth in these words. It's an illustration of our text. It's an application of Galatians 6, 7 that God is not mocked. What a man sows, he will reap. Our text presents the first instance of church discipline. It is challenging. It is encouraging. It is sobering. Sin begets sin. The desire for praise, the desire to look good, to lie. We can fool ourselves nearly all of the time. We can fool other people some of the time. But you know how this is going to end. But we cannot fool God at any time. God is omniscient and we are accountable to Him. God sees all and God knows all. The judgment of Ananias and Sapphira, the sudden death, the, the um, uh, drop-dead nature, shows us how serious sin is to God. But it also shows us how gracious God is in often deferring judgment. In Romans 11, Paul speaks about the kindness of God and the severity of God. Earlier in Romans, he speaks of God's kindness leading us somewhere. Kids, if you hear that, if God is kind, where do you think that leads to? Oh, well, if God's kind, it'll lead us to do anything we want to do, right? No, Paul says rightly that God's kindness leads us one place in particular. Repentance. Repentance. You see, fear that judgment creates is exactly what our text seeks to produce. Both respect for God and for righteousness, as well as recognition that sin is dangerous and destructive. And so our text presents a call to examine our lives. Now, if we even take a look for a minute at our lives, there's, we're going to see the gap between our confessional theology and our practical theology, from what we say we believe to what we actually do. You see, to some degree, we're all hypocrites, for we don't fully practice what we preach. And to some degree or another, we are all pretenders, seeming to be rather than being. But my friends, our text supports the good news of the gospel. You see, there is good news for those who have been hiding or pretending. You see, the gospel rightly can be seen as an announcement that there's no longer a need for you or me to pretend to be someone we are not. And why is that? Because there was one and only one who never pretended to be what he was not. There was one in whom there was no pretense at all. To quote the title of another song, what you see is what you get with that one. The good news of the gospel is that one 
Jesus lived and died for great pretenders like us. Therefore, if you're pretending right now to be spiritually who you are not, then turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. Because my friends, when you feel, when you no longer feel that you have to pretend, you know what happens? This great unbearable burden is taken off of your shoulders. There is freedom. If the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. My friends, when you and I no longer have to expend energy and effort and time to pretend to be who we aren't, the weight is lifted as we look to Jesus. You see, Jesus is not the great pretender. Jesus is who He says He is. And because of that, He can do for you what you could never do for yourself. He could and did and does live a life of perfect obedience. And He died a sin-atoning death for us and for our salvation. Jesus Christ lived and died in our place and on our behalf. My friends... Run to Him. Rest in Him today. And you'll be able to sing a different song. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word that indeed is sharp as a double-edged sword. It both wounds us and heals us, knocks us down and picks us up, uncovers us and covers us. Father, we thank you for your word as your spirit brings it to bear on our lives. Father, I pray that this congregation of people here at Grace and Peace that you are gathering and growing, I pray that it would welcome pretenders. But in being a part of of the life and ministry of this church, the mask would come off. And the reality of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone would be real. We thank you, God, for the one man, the one man who never pretended to be who he was not, is at your right hand and interceding for us. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. The call to the one